Let's open our Bibles together to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. I want to spend this morning and the next Lord's Day morning in a couple of the Psalms and think about how the Lord wants us to remember Him and praise Him and also to fear Him, to reverence Him above all. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Psalm 111 is a hymn of praise that extols the Lord Jesus Christ in its fulfillment. That is who it finds its fulfillment in. But it exhorts us to remember to always give thanks to God for his wonderful works. It is an acrostic psalm, and what that means is each line begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, so there are 22 letters, and so there are 22 lines in this song. It begins with the overflow of the heart of the psalmist as he is bursting with praise. Praise the Lord, he says in Verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, but I'm not going to just do it alone. I'm not going to just praise God alone, but no, I'm going to praise God in the company of the upright, in the congregation. The psalmist is committed to a life of praise. He consciously chooses a heart that is filled with faith and praise rather than doubt and complaining. And this is a really good reminder for us, regardless of where we find ourselves in our circumstances, there is a choice for us to make, which is to commit ourselves to praise. And his praise, as I mentioned, is both personal and congregational. And and this is so important for us to recognize because it reflects a healthy spiritual life. If you only praise God in private without regular participation in congregational praise, then your heart is going to shrivel up within itself. You're going to dry up. 
because God didn't intend praise to merely be private. He wants it to be public. Or if you only praise God in public without cultivating a heart of praise throughout the week, then your heart is going to become cold and hypocritical. And so it's so beautiful that we see the example of the importance of both. Both private and public praise are essential to a healthy relationship with God. And that is what we see displayed here. Therefore, our big idea this morning is this. God wants us to remember his works so that we will give him thanks. In other words, he wants us to remember the great things he has done, but he doesn't want us to just stop with remembrance. He wants us to vocalize a response to that remembrance, a response to his works. Too often when God does something amazing, we move on to the next thing too quickly, and then we forget. So today, we are pausing to praise. Let us deliberately remember the great things that he has done for us as a congregation. It was 32 years ago that God led a small group of men and women to plant a gospel-preaching church here in Mayfield Heights. A few years later then, the Lord opened up this property that we now find ourselves occupying property that belongs to the Lord. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but he has given this property to us to steward for his purposes, for the glory of Christ and the glory of his church. And so the Lord has so graciously provided for us in having this property and Uh, As you've already heard, how the Lord just led us four years ago, believing that there is a bigger vision that God wants to accomplish here in Mayfield Heights, that we didn't really know what that was going to look like, but we did know one thing we could do, and that was we could concentrate and focus our attention on destroying debt. And God has been faithful through your generosity, through your grace, through the evidence of the grace of God at work in your hearts, He has done that. And we look to the future. We thank God for the past and we give him glory and we praise him. But all the while, we also looking to the future as how God wants to continue to build his church here. We pause to praise, to celebrate his faithfulness. Why? Because God wants us to remember his works so that we will give thanks to him. In Psalm 111, the anonymous songwriter mentions four ways to remember God so that we will give him thanks. Number one, remember to delight in his great works. Remember to delight in his great works. That's such an important concept. Verse 2, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. The works of God on behalf of his people are great. They are enormous 
and they are important. They are studied by all who delight in them. Think about that for a moment. We concentrate on what we delight in. We talk about what we delight in. We study what we delight. What we focus on reveals our heart's affections. And so the psalmist says, Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. It is that heart's delight in the works of God that then produces vocal praise for him and what he's done. Surely the psalmist is thinking about the majesty of God in creation. I mean, his works are displayed everywhere we look. Through creation, God has displayed his power and his might, as the apostle says in Romans, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Creation shouts the glory of God. King David sings of God's glory in creation in Psalm 139 when he writes, For you were formed, for you formed me, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So David gets really personal here. He says, what are the wonderful works that God has done? Well, one of them is the way that he has created me. You ought to be thinking about that. Think about the way that God created you. He created you male or female. He created you to shine forth the glory of God, to shine forth the glory of the one who created you. He created you uniquely, giving you gifts and abilities that that correspond with the works that he wants you to accomplish in your life. He is an awesome creator, the awesome creator. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, and this ought to lead us to say, I praise you, God, for what you have done and how you have made me. God's works are full of splendor and majesty, it says in verse 3. That is, they're glorious. They display his glory. His works display his glory to his people. What is the glory of God? The best thing I can come up with in a concise way is to say that the glory of God is the manifestation of all that God is so that we see him. And so he has put himself on display in all that he has done and continues to do for us. The works of God reveal his kingly character. In his righteousness, he, it, his righteousness endures forever. In other words, his works are accomplished in righteousness, it says in verse 3. So all of God's works are right. The righteousness of God is the natural outflow of his holiness. Because he is holy, everything he does is right and good and just. 
according to the New Testament, the ultimate work of righteousness was accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When the Son of God became man so that he could die in our place on the cross and be raised three days later, he did that to accomplish the righteousness of God and to display the righteousness of God. He fulfilled the righteousness of God through his death. As a result, then, when, when we turn from our sin to the Lord Jesus in faith, he gives us his righteousness. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 3 when he writes, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now... Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Through the work of Christ on the cross, the righteousness of God was displayed. His righteous work How did he do that? Righteous God paid for our sin in a righteous way with a righteous sacrifice. And now when we turn from our sin and embrace Jesus, we receive his righteousness in exchange for our sin. That is breathtaking. You think about that gift from God. His works display his righteousness, which endures forever. So the righteous works of God find their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a second way to remember God and give him thanks. Remember his grace and mercy towards sinners who fear him. Remember that not only is he righteous and just, and therefore he must punish sin, but he's also gracious and merciful. And it's on that cross where the righteousness of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God all came together to do what we could never have done for ourselves. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered, verse 4. God wants us to remember his works. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works. So the grace and mercy of God are received by those who fear him. That is, by those who repent. Those who turn from sin and turn to God for salvation. That's when we experience the grace and mercy of God. And he provides, it says in verse 5, This anonymous songwriter recounts Israel's 40-year wandering in the wilderness and the manna and the quail and the water that came pouring out of rocks. God provided for his people. And he remembers his covenant forever. In other words, God did all of these great works because of the promises that he made. He is a promise-keeping God. And that's why his faithfulness can be trusted by us. He has shown his people the power of his works. Turn back to Psalm 105 just to see one example 
of this. There are a number of historical psalms, uh, songs that trace the history of God working in his people. And Psalm 105 is one of them. You just pick it up in verse 40. They asked, that is, the people asked God, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. That, for, that little word in verse 42, four, is a connecting word. In other words, why did he do this in verses 40 and 41? Why did he provide for his people? Because he had made a promise and he is a promise-keeping God. And he has made a promise to care for us, to do his mighty work through us, and he will keep that promise. And so he brought his people out with joy, verse 43 says, his chosen ones with singing. You heard a little bit of that song this morning, the song of Moses that Moses wrote after they were delivered from Egypt. He gave them lands of the nations. They took possession of the fruit of the people's toil that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. God has done all these mighty works for us and displayed his faithfulness so that we will walk in his ways, so that we will fear him, that we will love him, that we will reverence him, that we will trust him. But the scope and vision of Psalm 111 extend far beyond what the writer could see at the time. Notice it says that he praised God for the inheritance of the nations. Now, Psalm 105 talked a little bit about that, the nations, that is, the land that God gave to Israel because of the promise that he had made. But ultimately, the inheritance of the nations refers to what Jesus Christ will accomplish through his gospel. Through the preaching of the gospel, the grace and mercy of God are taken to the ends of the earth, to the nations, and those who are saved then become a part of the Savior's inheritance. The nations are his inheritance. And so we look forward to that future day when the nations will worship Christ. In Revelation 7, the Apostle John describes what he saw. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There is coming a day in which Jesus will inherit the nations. And all those who are saved will shout forth his praises. That's why we are a mission-minded church. That's why we are committed to taking the gospel, not only to Mayfield Heights in Cleveland and Ohio and the U.S., but to the world, to the nations. 
Because that's part of the inheritance that Jesus earned through his work. God will give those who belong to him the inheritance of the nations because of Christ. There's a third way to remember God and give him thanks. Verses 7 and 8. Remember his faithfulness to keep his promises. Remember that he is faithful. He always keeps his promises. Verse 7. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. So the works of God are tied in to the promises of God that are given in the word of God. And so as God fulfills his word, he displays his faithfulness. That's why we have to continue to be faithful to God's word. To be faithful to scripture is to be faithful to God. You cannot separate God from his word. To continue to see the great works of God among us, we claim his promises in his word. His promises are rock-solid truths that can always be trusted because they reflect his reliable character and his sovereignty. The New Testament says that in Christ we are blessed beyond measure with the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. The work of Christ was one loud exclamation point of amen on all of the promises of God. And so in Christ, all of the promises of God are made sure. They are yes to us. Remember the faithfulness of God to keep all of his promises. What proof do we have that he will keep his promises? Well, we need to look no further than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ because at the cross, his promises came true. And in Christ, all of the promises of God are yes and amen. And so we look to Christ. We look to him. And then finally, there's a fourth way to remember God and give him thanks. Notice verses 9 and 10. Remember the big picture of his everlasting redemption. I word it this way because you, you know that the writer is thinking past when he's thinking of redemption, and yet at the same time, he says that the praise will endure forever. And so we know that there's something bigger going on here. He's looking backwards obviously, to the redemption of God and his deliverance of the people of God. He sent redemption to his people. That refers to the countless times that the Old Testament records how God saved his people. And he did this in keeping his covenant. 
the covenant he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I mean, think about it. God saved his people from extinction by a worldwide flood by raising up Noah to build an ark that Peter then says is a picture of Christ in whom we hide. We hide from the judgment of God in Christ who is the ark of God. God saved his people from destruction by opening a path through the Red Sea and judging Pharaoh's army. And so God has made a way for us and there's a day coming in which the Lord will judge all the wickedness on this earth. God saved his people from extinction by famine, by sending Joseph to Egypt ahead of the people of Israel to be raised up as a redeemer, little r, as a picture of the big redeemer, uppercase r, in whom we find redemption. When God's people rebelled and lived like the other nations, doing what seemed right in their own eyes, God sent judges to deliver them. Over and over and over, God has saved his people. Even we find in the book of Esther, the only book of the Bible that does not mention God's name anywhere, we see how God rescued his people from extinction by the hands of an anti-Semite named Haman who ended up hanging on the gallows that he had built for his own enemy. God takes care of his people. Always. There are many historical psalms which mention these mighty works of God. We looked at 105. Turn backwards to 106 just for a moment to see a little bit more of how the writers of the book of Psalms were writing songs that would bring to remembrance to the minds of the people of God the great things that God had done. Psalm 106, pick it up in verse 7. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy, and the waters covered their adversaries that not one of them was left. God was faithful to his covenant promises, and so he sent redemption to his people. No wonder then the writer of Psalm 111 says, Holy and awesome is his name. God is awesome. And then verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Seems like a funny way to end the song, but not really, because it's a transition into the next psalm, which speaks of the fear of the Lord. And these songs, uh, historically, were sung together. But clearly, 
It is those who fear the Lord who then obtain true wisdom, and it's those who fear the Lord who then turn to him and become the beneficiaries of all of the promises that God has made. And so again, we are pointed to Christ. The praise of God will endure forever because of the redemption of Jesus. Those who are saved will give praise to the Savior for his mighty work of redemption for eternity. We will praise him. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We see how the Apostle Paul develops this as the goal of the church. The goal and the end of the church is the glory of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 3. Get a little bit of context here. Let's pick it up in verse 7. He's been talking about the gospel for the first three and a half chapters and how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three were involved in our salvation, in the accomplishing of our salvation. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, we have been made alive by God in Christ. It has been the work of the sovereign God. And so then he says in verse 7 of chapter 3, of this gospel, this gospel I've been explaining to you, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. In other words, I didn't just wake up one day and think, oh, it would be a good idea to be an apostle. This was God's purpose and plan for Paul. It was God's grace that saved him. It was God's grace that then called him into gospel ministry. This gospel was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Think about that, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And then he prays. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. Oh, to know the love of Christ. 
that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Did you notice that? God is able to do far more abundantly than we can even ask or think according to the power at work within us. What's that? That's the Holy Spirit working through us. To him be glory in the church. So this is, this is what Paul's saying. In the church, which is the fullest display of the manifold wisdom of God and his grace and mercy toward us as sinners. In the church, God wants to display far more abundantly than we can even ask or think as the Holy Spirit works through us. Why? So that Christ will receive all of the glory. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Praising God for his wonderful works will find its culmination in the worship, eternal worship of Christ. He is why we are here. He alone is to be worshipped and adored and loved with all of our hearts. Please join your hearts with me in prayer. Father, it is a breathtaking reality that we cannot fully comprehend that you love us so much. We who have rebelled and walked away from you, just like your people in the Old Testament, doubting your promises, turning away from your word, not doing the things that you have commanded us to do, or failing to do things you have not commanded us to do or doing the things that you've not commanded us to do. We rebel in both ways, Lord. We do things we shouldn't. We don't do the things we should. And yet your love is everlasting toward us in Christ Jesus. It was your grace, just like the Apostle Paul, it was your grace that moved into our hearts and minds, first making us aware of our need for the Savior and then causing us to bow the knees of our hearts to him, to receive him, to receive the salvation that you so freely offer. And now, Lord, it is the desire of our hearts to praise you for your wonderful works, to be voice boxes that are speaking throughout the world the glorious works of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Oh God, we praise you for what you have done in the past, what you are doing among us even now, and what you will do through us in the future. Give us faith to believe. For your word says we don't even know what to ask for. We ask you for things that are too small. You want to do far more abundantly beyond what we ask or think. Do this mighty work, God, through us for the glory of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.